Hi there and welcome to the student journey marking the process. In this week's episode we have an incredible guest who's going to talk to us a bit about the admission system um, in the US which we thought would be interesting to compare. So hey Kelsey, welcome. Um, this isn't a physical space um we'd love to welcome you to kind of you know our cool office where we have like ball pits and vending machines uh but sadly the current climate means we're meeting on zoom um would you mind introducing yourself and talking a bit about your background and your interest in education absolutely well thank you for having me yes we are we are in a a nice virtual zoom room together today which is which is also good even if we're not in a physical office so as Erin mentioned my name is Kelsey Fenner I'm a U.S. higher education administrator working at a doctoral research university in the northeast um, I have a master's degree in higher education and primarily my interest is in mapping student outcomes as well as trying to expand outcomes for students beyond just the college to labor market pipeline so looking at different um, opportunities, different um, roads that they can take to get into their chosen fields. Amazing, thank you. And I'm so sorry, I forgot to mention you do have a surname. <laughs> I apologize for just referring to you as Kelsey. Um, oh, yes. And also, as, as we were, had talked about earlier in our, in our, in our little warm up, um, yes, my name is Kelsey Fatter and I do use she, her pronouns. Amazing, thank you. Um, Safia, do you want to give an overview of the UK um, admission system before we compare it to the US? Yeah, so thanks, Erin. So in the UK, things go a little bit differently to the United States as we're about to find out. So as we covered on our first couple of episodes, in the UK in year 12, you begin studying your either three, four, sometimes even five A-level subjects. And then you often um, drop that down to either four or three at the start of year 13. And then you apply in October if you're applying to a specialist subject such as dentistry or medicine or you're applying to certain universities such as Oxbridge otherwise you apply by the January deadline in year 13 and then at that point you also choose your um, universities in the sort of uh, early months of your year 13 year you make your choices of up to five different universities you sit the exams in that summer and you obtain results in the August of that year at which point your university place is confirmed. And you may also have to go through a clearing day to, um, to choose another choice or to choose a different choice to what you originally applied for. So that's the UK timeline kind of gone over. But Kelsey, how does the US one sort of differ? How does, what does college admissions look like for you in the US? And, and feel free to bring in anything like your own application experience or, or interesting examples that come up in the US application experience. Thanks, Safia. Yes, so it is a little bit different in the US. Uh, we have a little bit of a different education system, which I think plays into why our university admission system takes a little bit of a different route. So in our second to last year of high school, so what we call our junior year, uh, is when our students typically sit their college admissions exams, our university admissions exams, such as the SAT, the ACT, and the SAT subject tests. So that ha generally happens in your junior year, uh, what you would call year 12 in the UK. In the summer, you are usually looking for colleges. You are, if you can, visiting college campuses or doing virtual college tours. 
And that continues up into your senior year, your final year of school's fall. So you're still looking at school, still kind of trying to decide which schools you want to apply for, perhaps which subjects you want to apply for. However, it's important to note that you don't have to go into the admissions process for university with a declared subject that you wish to study. You can go in as an undeclared major. We also don't cap the number of universities that you can apply to. So you can apply to as many as you want. I know in my own experience, I think I applied to about 12 when I was applying to university. And that application process formally begins in your senior fall. So typically in about September, October, you are working on essays, drafting your common application, which is an application that is used by a majority of uh, universities here in the US, universities and colleges in the US. And that includes uh, things like personal essay, letters of recommendation, supplemental questions that individual universities might ask, as well as spaces for students to fill in uh, activities that they do in school, out of school, work experience, things like that. We typically have about three deadlines for university admissions. So we have what we call the early decision deadline. And this deadline is for students who are certain that they wanna to go to the school to which they are applying. So if I wanted to go to a school, let's say um, the University of Pennsylvania, and that was the only school I wanted to go, and I, I, um, I'm not concerned about financial aid, or I know that I will receive enough financial aid to make the University of Pennsylvania feasible, I will apply to that school early decision. Should I get into the University of Pennsylvania when I apply early decision, which that deadline tends to be in October or November, November 15th is usually a pretty common date for the early decision deadline, I'll find out in December whether or not I've gotten in. So December of my senior year. Uh, I'm now pretty much bound to that university. That's where I'm going. So I found out now in December of my senior year of high school that I am going to the University of Pennsylvania because I applied early decision. There's another deadline called the early action deadline, which is generally around the same time as the early decision deadline, but it's a non-binding deadline. So it just is essentially allows students to show that they're very interested in the school, but it doesn't bind you, which is a very nice option for the financial <laughs> aspect of, of university, where you don't want to be bound to a university uh, where maybe you haven't seen your financial aid package, how much um, need-based or merit-based aid that you're going to get. So again, that deadline is around November 15th. And then the regular decision deadline, which is when a lot most students apply, uh, is usually January 1st, although it can be as late as March 1st for certain schools. So again, it's kind of a window, but January 1st is usually the deadline that's given as the regular decision deadline. And that's there's no binding aspect of that. That's just when you can send applications to as many schools as you want. So most students will find out if they apply early action or early decision, those two earlier deadlines, before um, January 1st, where they're going or where they've gotten in. If you apply a regular decision, most decisions come out between March and April of your senior year. So kind of into the second half of your senior year. And then all students have to select their college choice, their university choice by May 1st. And that's kind of the, the deadline for choosing where you wanna go and paying a deposit to hold your space at the university. <laughs> So you can see it's a little bit different. There's a few more deadlines and it can be a little bit more variable than the UK just because of the different, the different um, takes and the different kind of um, policies that individual universities put into place around admissions. 
And when students are applying, I guess, what, what types of examinations are happening over this timeline? Sure, sure. So I mentioned briefly about the kind of nationalized uh, standardized testing that we have for university admissions. So those tests include the SAT, the ACT, and uh, SAT subject tests, which are individual subject tests in specific um, academic subjects. Uh, there's also tests that some students may be taking in their junior year and in their senior year um, called the AP, the Advanced Placement Tests. And these are actually tied typically and, and most commonly to classes that students are taking in their school. So for example, you may take an AP Physics course in your junior year. At the end of that year, you're going to take an AP Physics test, which is a college level test that will allow uh, you to if you get a good enough score, perhaps skip a class once you're at university or test out to a higher class. So sometimes you get credit, sometimes you are able to skip a class, but often universities look at it as a measure of uh, academic success if you've taken advanced placement classes. So uh, most schools offer advanced placement classes. Students don't have to take them, they're optional, but they're offered typically ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th grade. So all four years of our high school system. Great, thank you. So if um, one correct me if I'm wrong, but you have students um, in their junior year kind of thinking about their application, et cetera, doing these AP classes really early in their senior year, they can do the ACT, SAT, et cetera. Um, is that correct? So they can take the SAT and the ACT typically in their junior year. So they usually take it in, okay. the, I think May is when I took it. However, if you're not happy with your score, you can, you can retake it. And most students do, I would say that. Um, pre-COVID-19 times, most students would sit it, sit the exam um, in May or June and then get their scores and perhaps take it again in October. So is students are spending most of their junior year kind of um, doing those examinations once they've applied to college, heard back in kind of April time, what do they then do at school? Sorry if that's a silly question, but you know, how do students spend their time if there's, you know, no assessment left? That's, it's not a silly question. And it's an interesting question because I think it differs school to school. So this is my experience based on my high school. Um, but I will also talk about kind of the phenomenon of senioritis, which I think is something that really does affect our, our seniors in high school and in, and in university. But in my high school, after we had applied and received our, our admissions, um, regardless of when that was in our senior year, we still had classes and we still had local exams. So even though we didn't have any maybe state or national level exams left because certain states do final exams at the end of the year as well, um, we still had local exams that were prepared by our teachers. We call them finals. Um, so we still had finals at the end of the year. So we still had exams to study for. I would say that the, in my own personal experience that the we didn't try as hard, <laughs> or at least I didn't. The, the kind of, the, the pressure was off a little bit because you knew as long as you passed or as long as you received a good enough grade that was kind of equivalent to what you had done in the past, you were still going to be going to college. You had received that place, you paid your down, your down payment for it, um, put your deposit down, and you basically knew. Now, it, had I failed those finals in my senior year um, or kind of completely decided not to go to class anymore or to, um, you know, skip all of my tests, all of my exams, the school can reach out to the university and say, Kelsey's really, you know, fall into the wayside this semester. You may want to 
reevaluate your decision. You know, she's she's failed two classes. She's just not taking her exams. Um, we're concerned about her academic performance after she got she's gotten into your college, into your university. So they can do that. There is a there is kind of a a byline that says you need to maintain your academic performance, but um, there's also the phenomenon of senioritis, which is what we kind of term as your kind of final final semester at college or in high school, where you kind of know where you're going, you're kind of already done. You've you've done the hard work in the past three and a half years, um, and so there's a little bit of perhaps a slacking off um, in. in for certain students, other students don't, but senioritis is definitely, I think, something that is a very common word that's used in um, academic spheres here in here in the U.S. And it just kind of describes the feeling of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done, but I'm still here. I'm just kind of coasting to, towards the end. I think that's so interesting because, oh, go ahead, Safia. No, I was just going to say, you're probably going to say exactly the same thing, because even though we don't have a word for it, the rise of unconditional offers in the UK a lot of what the criticism of that has been has been that you get your unconditional offer in say January February March and then mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's like what am I even doing for the rest of the academic year 13 and then there's no yes. I don't think there's any of that kind of communication even on a on a tangential level in the UK between the universities and um and sixth forms and, and colleges and just mm -hmm. and saying oh you need to actually ensure you get above a certain level to get this unconditional offer is really just that and there's also there's been like cash payments and incentives and things like that i've always been interested in the the conditional and unconditional offers of the uk uh, i think the us has something similar in that our acceptances come in you're either accepted you're rejected or you're waitlisted and if you're waitlisted you could potentially still be accepted um but it depends on whether or not the uh student who has been accepted you know turns down the offer so I've always been interested kind of by the unconditional and conditional based on the testing timeline of the UK. That is really interesting. So um, one thing I did want to ask, and in fact, the comment I wanted to make earlier was um, actually, Safia, I wasn't going to bring up unconditional offers. I was going to say the system you described, Chelsea, is the exact opposite to ours and with our kind of exam system. So you start year 12, um, around 16, you finish at 18, you are rarely formally assessed until that summer of year 13, um, unless you have a few coursework modules, which tends to be the case. Um, so we have almost kind of created this culture of coasting, coasting, and then putting in a lot of hard work at the end, which, you know, we could call cramming. Um, so it's really interesting to think of your system where, you know, you put in all the hard work first and then you can have a break, which actually, you know, we're, we're quite anti. Um, obviously, you know, we, we hope people work consistently, but what we found this year when exams were cancelled and people were judged on their kind of current work um, is people were, you know, achieving much lower than they were hoping to. What I was going to say about um, conditional and unconditional offers is, I don't remember, what was your question? <laughs> I think I just said it was interesting. I think it was just interesting because you have conditional and unconditional and we tend to always lean towards unconditional offers. Yeah, yeah, that was it. So I think the waitlist sounds interesting because we don't have that, but what we do have is one, universities over-offering places. So they give out more places than they have because you know the expectation is some students are going to fail or not meet those conditions. Um, interestingly, we have a system called clearing um, or adjustment, which is when um, you know, you've applied to your five universities, you have accepted to and said, here's my first choice, here's my second choice. 
your second choice usually want lower grades than your first choice if you've made you know a, a more informed decision um and then what happens is you know for students who have missed both offers they're put into this strange day called clearing which um Safi and I have loads of experience in in terms of the students we've supported um and students are expected to call up universities um and say hey I, I saw you still have places for social anthropology because that's not the most popular course. I got these grades, will you take me? And it's this really weird kind of day of bargaining with multiple universities that you hadn't considered applying to, sometimes courses you hadn't considered applying to because, you know, it's so late in the day and you're out of options. Um, and that's one of the things that this post-qualification admission system would somehow overcome or actually extend to everyone, we're not sure. But I wanted to ask, is there an equivalent of that in the US? Is it ever the case that someone has no college offers? Um, do they have, you know, an extended date in which they're able to apply? Uh, no, I'm actually shaking my head right now, just because that is such an interesting concept and something that, as you were describing it, I just kept thinking, oh my goodness, if I was in that position, I would be very stressed, I think. Um, there's nothing equivalent. If you don't get into any of the schools that you've applied to, you just don't get in. Uh, there are options to still go to universities or to a college um, if you don't get into a school you've applied to, but typically you have to apply to, say, maybe a community college, which has a rolling deadline. So they're still accepting applications after the May 1st uh, kind of decision day. But if you don't get into, say, your the 10 schools you applied to in the initial batch, you are going to have to reapply to schools that are still um, accepting applications, which typically at that point is just going to be two-year community colleges, which are kind of our, uh, they, they used to be called junior colleges. They're not called that anymore. They're usually run by the individual states. They're governed by the individual states here in the U.S. And they're, they're almost as, um, they offer more uh, kind of industry qualifications. So, you know, electrical training, mechanic training, kind of more, I think, similar to, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of your BTEC um, qualifications perhaps. Um, and then, but also they can serve as a pathway to a four-year institution that maybe you missed getting into in your, in your senior year of high school. So kind of getting two more years of experience before you go to a two-year, to an up to a four-year school. We stand clear the closing doors. Mind the closing doors, stand clear. The thing about clearing is it's so time bound, you know, they will say, okay, we want you, we'll give you an offer, um, but you know, you need to tell us you're coming here within the next 24 hours or 48 hours. And in that time, you're trying to collect more offers from other universities so that you can then sit down that same evening, make a decision as to where you want to go the most. And yeah, and you just end up somewhere new. It's like on reflection, I think a lot of students go somewhere they didn't expect and are largely happy. Um, and I think that comes from, you know, how standardised the university experience is across the UK, but it is really interesting. It's interesting because some of the kind of arguments for a post-qualification admission system come from, it's not necessarily an argument, but it's something I've noticed talking to students. The idea that students are really rushed in their application. So, and I think this is actually something that's quite similar in the US timeline and the UK timeline. So. If you are applying for Oxbridge or medicine or veterinary medicine, you have to apply in that October of your final year, so year 13 or equivalent. And as well as that, you're normally doing mock examinations, which will be used to determine your predicted grades, which, 
you know, universities look at instead of your real grades. You're preparing for interviews, you're writing your personal statements, you know, you've just finished summer and now you've been told you need to know what you want to study and you need to do that application. So a lot of the students I've spoken to have said, you know what, it would be quite nice to kind of have that year, get all the work done and then spend this time applying. Um, it seems like that isn't the case in the US system and actually it seems like from what I've heard in terms of your personal experience um, and the American movies I've watched, students are juggling quite a lot, you know, and I think that's because whilst you guys don't necessarily have the pressure of deciding what subject you're applying to, you are being considered on extracurricular activities, on leadership activities, which in the UK doesn't really matter unless, you know, you're applying for more vocational courses or courses, yeah. That's a, that's a good point. I guess I think it is interesting as kind of having this outsider perspective to see how your, your decisions are really based on an academic subjects exam, right? And something that you've, that you've studied for years and years and years and you've become very specialized in it. That is not necessarily the case in, in the US. And perhaps it's because our system is larger, but I think more likely it's just the way that we've kind of created this idea of the all around student, right? This all American student who is doing sports, who is working a part-time job, who is doing clubs and activities at their school, and also who is getting you know, perfect grades and doing well on subject tests. So I think a big aspect for us when we're looking at admissions applications and in my own work, when I'm looking at admissions applications and making decisions on you know, who I want to put forward to say the next round, uh, for example, I'm looking not just at scores, but what makes the student a whole package? What are they passionate about? What, are they, what do they do outside of school? Um, because I think there's this idea in America, in the US that just school isn't enough. Um, and I think that that is a bit of a fallacy because it, it, A, it places a lot of pressure on students to get involved outside of school when really college and university at its, at its basis is about learning. It's about education. It's about taking courses and becoming more knowledgeable in whatever subject you decide to choose. Um, but in order to get in, you have to be doing 10, 12 things uh, to get into the more competitive schools. Of course, certain schools are really interested in just looking at, at grades, but if you're trying to get into an Ivy, into a top 50 university in the US, you're most likely doing drama, art, sports, probably working, probably volunteering. You're probably doing some sort of leadership at your school in terms of clubs, and you're taking four or five APs in your junior and senior year, um, and you're doing um, well in all of your classes, you know, getting top marks in all of your classes. So it, it is definitely, I think, more of a the whole package kind of holistic review, as we've started to call it, a more holistic review. Um, with that, I do think that there's pros and cons with that. I think there are times where I might see a student who's done weaker in a, in a, in a class, but I can also see that they were working two part-time jobs and they were trying to, you know, they needed to work in order to help support their family. And so I can kind of take that and say, well, I can't expect that student to perhaps do as well in school as someone who has no responsibilities for their family versus someone who's working two part-time jobs. Is that always the rationale that goes into decisions? I don't know. It's a subjective process at, at, its, at its basis. Um, I'd like to say that, you know, we've perfected it, but I don't think anyone can because um, we're, we are human. We are subjective at times. Um, but I do think, yeah, you, 
the UK does seem to take a more, we're just looking at these grades and this is kind of, you know, the, the do or die almost of do well on your exam so you can go to university. Uh, whereas we're looking at everything that you've done from, from when you entered high school um, all the way up through, including everything that you've ever done even outside of school, which is fun. That's, that's so interesting and whilst I, I'm aware we're slightly going off topic with um, away from PQA but it's it's interesting to think about you know what you're presenting as quite contextual admissions um, mm -hmm. because that is something we have introduced in the UK but it's much more formulaic and much more kind of um, yeah data-led as opposed to like oh we can see on your application that this is your personal experience instead what we have at some universities and not all is um based on kind of data or metrics that the government have decided are you know widening participation criteria a university might say to you hey we can see your postcode and when we put it through our database uh we know that not many people from that that postcode or that area go off to university for that reason you know we we'd be happy for you to get lower grades and the interesting thing about that is, again, we are taking students before they have sat their exams, before they've been awarded anything. So, you know, you can have students at the same school, both applying for the same course at the same university, and one is expected to get three A's and one is expected to get ABB, which, as, as kind of mentioned earlier, could lead to senioritis or, you know, kind of um, sitting back a bit. I don't necessarily think it does. And I think, you know, there's a lot of data that goes into checking whether a student from a particular background coming in on those grades can do well um, in the course. And actually a lot of kind of safeguarding and uh, double checking is done before making those decisions. But it is a really interesting kind of admissions process to discuss. This train terminates at Stratford. So Kelsey, I've just got two kind of questions then. Um, so there's like a stereotypical reputation of American university being very expensive in comparison to a lot of other countries rightly or wrongly we can go into that but um what kind of fees are there for just applying in the first place and also are the fees that universities charge for tuition and other costs do they have a great determinant in where students actually choose to apply to um at all because in the uk for example there is not really much variation in what the actual tuition fee will be and it's not really a factor for students things like living costs obviously have variability so some students may choose to stay at home if they live in a city with a university because of that or other things like that but, but on the whole there isn't a choice you wouldn't choose one over the other because of the tuition fees but what kind of so what kind of costs are there in the US and what um, how does this influence students so I think that there is a bit more of an influence um, in the US because of cost um, and I think as you, as you said, yes, there is definitely this idea that U.S. universities are expensive, and they certainly are. So there is a cost associated with applying to universities. Um, each institution usually charges an application fee, and those range uh, from anywhere, you know, $25 to maybe $100. Um, it's set by the, by the individual institution, so they decide. Um, but each, each institution will charge a fee. There are instances where students can get application waivers, students coming from low SES backgrounds, um, their school counselors can, can designate them as needing a school um, application waiver, things like that. But for the most part, you are paying to apply to each school. I should also note that if you choose to take the SATs or the ACTs, and um, they are required by most schools, although we are seeing a bit of a push towards a more test 
um, optional system, uh, you do also have to pay for those tests. So they're not just walk in and take them. You do have to pay. I don't remember the exact cost of when I took it, but I believe it was about $100 to take the test. So it's not, it's not an insignificant cost, even just to think about applying to schools. In terms of how the finances and kind of the cost of universities plays into decisions, I would say in my own personal experience, and I think um, I, I can speak to a lot of students' experiences, this is the major decision um, deciding factor in what school to apply to um, and to actually go to. So there are variable costs between universities and sometimes you're not really sure why one university might be more expensive than the other. But for example, a state university, so a university that's governed by a, a US state. So say the State University of New York at uh, Binghamton, my alma mater. Um, tuition may cost 15,000 a year. Um, with room and board costs on top of that, probably equaling about maybe 30000 a year um, for each year that you go to school. Um, this is before any sort of need-based or merit-based aid, financial aid has been applied. So this is kind of just the sticker price of the university. Uh, other schools that are designated as private institutions, so four-year private institutions, they're not run by uh, a state government. They're, they're just owned and run by a board of trustees. Um, kind of governed independently, uh, can run anywhere from 50,000 to 75,000 with tuition making up the kind of the brunt of that. So for example, I think I saw that um, certain schools that I won't mention, but are easily Googleable have broken the 75,000 mark uh, for tuition and room and board. And to be fair, they may offer more financial aid than a SUNY school, but the gap is getting a lot larger. Um, so, so that definitely is a deciding factor. You might get into two schools, but you might receive um, a, a merit-based scholarship at one for 20,000. That makes that much more affordable than a school that maybe you really wanted to go to, but didn't give you a scholarship. So, so financial you know, determinants are definitely, I think one of the deciding factors in where students decide to go to school. I know in my own, personal experience, uh, the school that I wanted to go to um, didn't give me enough money. So I went to a different school. And actually when I went to that school, um, they changed my financial aid package um, due to my older sister graduating university prior, you know, before I had, um, and this was after my first year of university. And so my financial aid package changed um, and I actually transferred because it had gone down so much. So I transferred to a different university. So I think finances is uh, something that doesn't play as much of a role in the UK just because of the way that you have um, kind of nationalized the, the cost <laughs> of universities, uh, which is not the case in the US. And is, um, is transferring a common thing? Because it happens here, but not, it's a, it's a very kind of like, you maybe have a handful, well, not a handful, but you know, like it's rare. Whereas in the US, it sounds like it's something that happens maybe a little bit at the time. Yes, it's definitely more common in the US. I don't know the, the exact stats on it, but each each semester of, of university, you, you welcome new transfer students. So much more common. Uh, we also have the community college system, which I talked a little bit about earlier, but how that works is if you complete a two-year degree at that school, you go into the US university in your third year. So you actually transfer in as a third year student um, because you already have done two years of college. And then you spend those last two years because the US system is four years 
uh, you spend the last third and fourth year at the four-year institution to graduate with a four-year degree. So Kelsey, what do you think of the UK system compared to the US one? system is, is, is rigid in that it requires a lot of students to make decisions very early on in their lives, which I think can be very challenging as a 16-year-old to be narrowing down subjects when you're 16. You're, you maybe haven't experienced exactly what life looks like if you were to pursue a career in that subject. Um, so I think when I think about the U.S. and the U.K., I think about it comparatively. I think the U.K. does some really good things in their admissions process, and then maybe some not-so-great things. And I think the same thing about the U.S. We have a much larger system, but I think it's almost too broad. So, so when I think about them, I think of the U.K. as being perhaps a little bit too insular in the way that they require students to narrow down their subjects, um, whereas I think that the U.S. is too broad in the way that they basically throw all of this information at students and then expect them to be able to filter through it. So I think almost thinking about more of a happy medium between the US and the UK where perhaps you have a bit of a broader understanding of um, a broader take on what you can study in, in, the U, in the UK when you're thinking about university, right? So if you do change your mind when you're 18 because you're still a teenager, um, that's okay, there's pathways for that versus um, in the US maybe being a bit more insular so that we're not only making decisions uh, about well-rounded students. Maybe we're really more putting more emphasis on academics since that is the root of university instead of thinking about this, you know, this whole holistic where we're gonna require you to do 24 activities and then five more. So I think, I think again, a happy medium between the two might be, might be a nice, a nice uh, thing to talk about in a future, in a future chat between us three. International Rail Services. This train terminates at... So Kelsey, earlier you mentioned that sometimes students may choose to pick an un, to make an undeclared application uh, to, to college. Why would, why would you pick an undeclared one over picking just something like specifically? Is it, is it just a matter of not really knowing what you want to do? Or are there any kind of other factors that would lead a student to choose that? For the most part, I think that when you decide to go undeclared, it's because you're not exactly sure what you want to study in university. Uh, there are other factors. When you're applying to university in the US, if you're applying to a university versus a college, because of course we use college a little bit differently than uh, as a term than you do in the UK, you're applying to a university, that means that there are different colleges within that institution. So there might be a college of liberal arts and sciences. There might be a college of engineering. There might be a college of nursing. So you can apply to one of those colleges within the university. So you might apply to the college of engineering if you wanna study engineering. If you're not sure what you wanna study, uh, you are probably applying to the college of liberal arts and sciences. Now you can say, this is what I think I might apply in. This is what I might major in. This is what I might study. But if you're not sure, you're not bound to declare it. You're not bound to say, I'm definitely gonna study neuroscience in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at Syracuse University. You're not required to say that. And in part, it's because that we don't ask students to declare their major. So basically say, this is what I'm studying. This is what I'm gonna graduate with a degree in until their sophomore year, so until their second year. So students for the most part will spend the first year or two of their college university experience taking general education requirements. 
Now they might differ if you've gotten into the College of Engineering at a university versus the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. They might have different general education requirements, but because you don't have to declare when you go in, you can always change your mind. So if I went in undeclared, but thinking that, oh, I might, I want to study English, but I actually go and I take an English class and I realize I don't want to study English. I actually really want to study biology. Having gone in undeclared means that I can switch to biology and I can go take those classes and there's no, there's no ramifications. I don't have to worry about, you know, having to run into any bureaucratic, you know, red tape. At the same time, if I'm studying, if I've declared that I want to major in biology um, and I go in and I say, nope, nope, I want to go do, I want to go do history. That's fine too. You can declare and then change. Um, there are instances where universities look at what they might want to major in as a way of kind of looking at how many students can we let in who are interested in X major, right? Who are interested in studying biology or who are interested in studying um, nursing, just as a way to kind of say, we don't want to only have biology majors. So going in undeclared also means that you're not necessarily being weighed against people who are saying, I'm definitely studying biology, I want to be pre-med, etc. cetera. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it's, I think it's less of a determining factor than, um, than it might seem um, kind of at the outset. Again, I think that's just such an interesting point of comparison because you know, we have such a streamlined system where you decide quite early on what it is you'd like to study. Um, in fact, at a much earlier age, you know, not just at university, but when you are studying your A-levels and the example you gave of transferring from English to biology, in my head, I was like, you couldn't do that here. One, because it's quite hard to do. Um, but two, because the A-levels you've taken have probably meant, you know, <laughs> you might be more qualified to do one and not actually allowed to do another. Um, it also made me think, you know, if we wanted to move to a system like that with our kind of focus on academic content, you know, what would an application look like? If, if someone said, hey, you know, I just want to come to you. I don't really care what I study. Um, you know, I'm interested in loads of things, but, you know, this is a uni I want to go to and why. There, there just would be <laughs> such, I don't know, such little to write about. Um, it's interesting because, you know, we do have a few degrees that are you know, just quite open liberal arts or arts and sciences or humanities and sciences, um, but they're very few and far between. And yeah, it just made me think a bit about if we had that system, what would those applications look like? I know there are some conversations um, across, I don't know, a few institutions as to, you know, moving away from personal statements more generally and assessing students purely on grades, which I think reinforces the point you made <laughs> about how obsessed we are with that kind of academic achievement rather than a more holistic picture. Um, but no, I just thought it was a really interesting point of comparison. One thing I would like to ask is you mentioned earlier the application process, the fees, some, some things differ from institution to institution. Um, here it's more standardized because we do have, um, I guess, heavier government involvement um with universities the university admissions yeah system because of that government oversight we now have calls for evidence we have consultations where we're talking about reform um is there any kind of desired reform in the us is there any part of the application um that students are quite vocally unhappy about absolutely i think i think admissions is and should always be something that continues to evolve and change as we are learning more and as we as we know more about how 
um, admissions processes privilege and um, some students over others. And so I think one of the one of the big pushes in recent years has been uh, moving away from just having only the early decision deadline, which binds you financially to that school, because that does at the kind of from from its appearance, privilege wealthier students, because if they're not concerned or they don't need financial aid to afford that school, they can apply. And statistically, early decision applicants do have a slightly better chance of being accepted. Um, so that's something that I think was looked at and, and people saw that that was, that was disadvantaging some students. So I think one of the changes that we've seen there is this early action deadline. And that's been in place. The early action deadline has been around for years, but I think it's becoming more and more popular as financially college is getting more and more expensive, um, that students are using that early action deadline to discuss, or to basically say, I'm really interested in the school. If I get in and financially I can afford it, I'm definitely coming here, right? But I need to at least see what my financial aid package is going to be uh, before I can commit because I'm not in a position where maybe I can just automatically say, no matter what, I'm going. Um, Another aspect that I think we've seen is uh, the kind of move away from requiring standardized tests. Uh, so requiring the SAT or the ACT. So there's a big push for test optional. And I think that COVID that has been really important and that is that we have gone test optional at many of our top universities. And why that's important is that I think schools that were kind of holding on to um, the SAT and the ACT as really determinants of you know, future success, which we know standardized tests aren't. We know that standardized tests privilege certain students and privileged students that can afford private tutoring or you know, classes of, about how to, how to ace the SAT. Um, I think what we've seen is that with COVID, we've had many of our top schools and our top students moving away from requiring the SAT and the ACT which is hopefully something that will continue in the long term to make these tests optional so that they're not kind of the main determining factor of, of future success in college. Because I think, as we know, the US has other ways to determine and we, we look at this kind of whole package and ensure testing can be an aspect of that, but it's also nice to think about we have other ways of, that we have other ways of determining future success that's not based on a standardized test that we know not everyone um, has had the same access to or the same chance to succeed on as other students. Amazing, thank you. I think that's a really good point to end on. Um, just, I think something that resonated is kind of our, our desire for reform, um, our being, you know, anyone in favor of PQA um, is largely driven by arguments of fairness. And, you know, thinking about the current system, who is it disadvantaging? Um, if you look at the data, it's mostly disadvantaging kind of high attaining students from the most disadvantaged backgrounds. So it's really nice to, to know that in the US, a lot of kind of desire for change is coming from that. I do have one bonus question just because I don't know, I spent time reflecting on the US system. I just wanted to ask what are legacy admissions and what, what are the ethics behind them? <laughs> Okay, so legacy admissions is a weird, weird, weird system. So legacy admission refers to um, a time, not a time, I guess it refers to when you have had someone in your family, typically a parent or a grandparent, who has attended a school. Um, 
say they've attended an Ivy League, they've attended Dartmouth. Uh, when you apply to that school, you're able to say, I am a legacy admit because I have had someone in my family who has gone to Dartmouth. Um, that is a system that I think personally is ethically a little bit unsound um, because it does tend to tell admissions counselors that there is an alumni affiliation. Um, perhaps that should give, you know, we should look a little bit more closely at this applicant and perhaps let them in, right? Just because we have this record of their family coming and we wanna make sure that we have a happy alumni network, which I think is something that um, even within the US and the UK, our alumni system is very different um, in terms of how it impacts and influences decisions at universities. So it, essentially the legacy, the legacy um, system at its base is when your parent or grandparent or someone in your family has gone to a university and that helps privilege your application in terms of admissions. I will say there has been pushback on this in recent years. So schools are moving more away from it. However, I would still note that on admissions applications, you will see if, if a student has an alumni affiliation and what that affiliation is, what that relationship is. So that does, I think, still play into minds of admissions counselors when they're reading applications. Ethically, I think it's, I think it's a little bit, uh, Murphy. <laughs> Incredible. Thank you so much. I'm sure like we will talk about this one day. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to say on behalf of like Safia and I, it would be amazing uh, to have you come back. Thank you so much for all your time and all your insight. Thank you both for having me. It's been a lot of fun. All change, please. This train terminates here. All change. Thanks for listening to the student journey, Mapping the Process. You can support the podcast by following us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please also follow us on Twitter at studentjourney1 and on Instagram at studentjourney underscore podcast. And we will see where the journey goes in our next episode.